read just uh, quickly from two sections of the book of Judges from the story of the life of Samson. The first verses are taken from the 13th chapter of the book of Judges at the very beginning of his life, and then I'll begin reading uh, about at verse 15 of the 16th chapter toward uh, the end of his life. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine or strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And then quickly, you know some of the escapades that took place in the life of Samson. I'll refresh you in a few minutes about them. But toward the end of his life, his undoing, of course, were three episodes with women, among other things. And uh, the last of these with one named Delilah, who was paid by the Philistines to find out the secret of his strength. And so let me begin reading from chapter 16, verse 15, some words that I think will uh, come back in your memory as I read them. And she, that is Delilah, said unto him, How canst thou say I love thee when thine heart is not with me. Thou hast mocked me these three times, and hast not told me wherein thy great strength lieth. And it came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words, and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death, that he told her all his heart, and he said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he hath showed me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up unto her, and they brought money in their hand. And she made Samson to sleep upon her knees, and she called for a man, and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. And she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. And he knew not that the Lord was departed from him. But the Philistines took him, and put out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza, and bound him with fetters of brass, and did grind, and he did grind in the prison house. Howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. Then the lords of the Philistines gathered themselves together to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon their God, and to rejoice, for they said, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. 
And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God is delivered into our hands, our enemy, the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. And it came to pass when their hearts were merry, that they said, Call for Samson, that he may make sport for us. And they called for Samson out of the prison house, and he made them sport. And they set him between the pillars. And Samson said unto the lad that led him by the hand, Let me, I pray thee, feel the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And they were upon the roof about 3,000 men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood and on which it was borne up, and of the one with his right hand and of the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. Then his brethren and all the house of his father came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Ashkatol in the burying place of Manoah his father. And he judged Israel twenty years. Amen. May God teach us the lessons he wants us to learn from this part of his word. When you come to an account of uh, an incredible figure like Samson in the Old Testament, there are always people who wish to approach it from either a too mystical viewpoint and see something into every line and tittle, or people from a mythical standpoint who want to write it off. What shall be our view and how shall we approach it? As I understand the Lord Jesus and the way in which he approached things and the Apostle Paul, explains, I think, not only his own position, but that of Jesus very well. When he tells us, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And again, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And this passage certainly is. And again, now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And then again, therefore seeing we are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And so we turn to the Old Testament and to this incredible account of Samson. Let me begin by saying this, that a few weeks ago I received an assignment to listen to ten lectures. 
I don't uh, always like to listen as much as I should, but I did uh, set myself to the task of listening to the 10 lectures. They were on tape. Uh, and amongst those series of lectures was one on, well, there were actually four on leadership, but the one that I had to evaluate on leadership used Samson as a background from the Old Testament in teaching us some negative traits about leadership that we ought to avoid. It was presented by Russell Dilday, who is a professor at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. The recording was very poor, and it meant that I had to really pay attention to listen, but I'm so glad I did because I learned some things that caused me to go back and to begin to study the life of Samson more carefully. Russell Dilday had found ten things from the life of Samson that were applicable to us in learning today, five of which I want to use as an outline this morning. He called my attention to a book, uh, through listening to this tape, to a book by Michael Corder, K-O-R-D-E-R, called Power, How to Get It and How to Use It. I started to bring it out here like I always bring books out and hold it up, but I was afraid the Lord might strike me if I did, because it's so Machiavellian in its approach. There are tricky little ways about how to get power over others. If you have some assertive, authoritative individual then you invite him into your office and you have a big wide desk and a high chair and you sit him down in a soggy soft uh, seat so that he has to sit there with his knee, knees up above his chin and look up at you and he doesn't feel very powerful and you can talk to him. And then he had other little tricks. If there's an old guy who's working for you and you want to get him out of the corporation, uh, you turn the rheostat down and get the lights dim and then you bring him in and you hand him some dim, uh, small print to read and ask him to read it to you. And then when he can't read it, uh, you talk about retirement and the fact that he's getting along in years. And uh, all sorts of horrible things. Uh, don't pay attention to him. Look, look right at the Windsor knot on his tie and he'll think he, you're soaking up everything he says. And, and that uh, strong people have a way of averting their eyes from you so they look at your shoes, so be sure your shoes are shined a couple of times a day and this gives them uh, a feeling of hiding their feet because their shoes look scruffy. And there are all kinds of little tricks that are used like this. Uh, well, Corder, of course, has no interest in Christianity. It's just power and how to get it and how to use it. And politicians are masters at... <laughs> Someone said to me the other day, wasn't it terrible that our presidents had to be politicians? And uh, there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, because you, you manipulate people, you use them. And this is not Jesus' way of doing things. Now, if you got into the story of Samson, you would see power, how to abuse it, and how to lose it. And if you recall a moment ago when I read you from the 13th chapter of Judges about this man's birth, the children of Israel were at this time being overrun by the Philistines. They needed a deliverer. They needed a hero. They needed someone that they could rally around to deliver them. And so there was a couple that had wanted children desperately. 
And the Bible is wonderful to always go back and show you how much influence parents have over their children to create some strength. It's amazing to me that almost every single personality that you read about in the scriptures, you read about something about their parents. And so we read about the parents of Samson. We read about this man by the name of Manoah, who wanted very much to have a son. We read that his wife was barren and could not have children. And then we read a strange encounter of an angel, a messenger who comes from God, to give her the great and good news that she is to give birth to a little boy who is to come into the world. But she is to take some vows that even before he is born, that she will take no wine or strong drink. And even now people are telling us how important it is for uh, mothers-to-be to be very careful about what they take into their body because of the effect that it may have on the unborn infant. But God's concerned about that unborn infant, and those who have the freewheeling notions about abortion ought to take attention at that. God does. And so God instructs this woman that she is to be careful in the birth of this little one who is to be born. He is to be a Nazarite from birth. That means that no razor is to touch his hair. No iron, no implement of iron or instrument of iron is to be over him. No instrument of iron was to be over the altar because he is to be separate and holy and designated for God. And oh, if Samson, with all of his tremendous potential, had only lived up to what God wished to do for him. Scripture tips us off when it says, and he shall begin to deliver Israel. He shall begin. He shall begin. But look what happens to him. There are three episodes with women. Uh, he first goes into a Philistine village and he sees a very pretty face and comes back to his mother and father, strict Hebrews, Jewish people, saying that he wishes to take to wife this pretty face that he had seen in a Philistine village, which is against what is supposed to be their law and which they should live by. And Manoah tries to argue with him about it, but it does no good. Parents do have a stake in trying to help their children to marry in the faith. And there's many a man who has been attracted to a pretty face who has later found that it has been his undoing. And so it is with Samson all the way through his tragic life. He is powerful. He goes to this village on the way. Uh, you remember the story how a lion comes out to attack him. And we're told that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and gives him some unusual strength at this time and he tears that lion's jaws apart. Like one would rip a small, apart a small helpless little goat. He's a big, huge giant of a man very powerful and very strong. And yet he is so weak when it comes to, to women and what they do to him here. And so Samson is determined that 
he is going to have this woman in spite of what his parents say and demands that they go and fetch her for him. You know perhaps the frivolous and romantic adventure that comes from this, how they have a seven-day wedding feast and on the way back when he goes back to the village he sees the carcass of the lion that he had killed and uh, bees have formed a honeycomb there and he makes his riddle about uh, sweetness uh, coming from this unusual source and, and uh, strength coming out of death and proposes the riddle to the people at the wedding feast and uh, does not tell anyone about it, not even his mother and his father. And they, he makes a big gamble, a big bet that if uh, they can't tell him what his riddle is in seven days, then they have to give him 30 changes of raiment and uh, that if he uh, if they are able to tell him, then he has to get them 30 changes of raiment. And then the woman begins her work on him uh, because she has been threatened by the Philistines and she finally gets him to reveal his secret. He can't keep his, his mouth shut, which is one of his problems. And uh, uh, this leads to him revealing to her the secret of his riddle and then he has to pay off his debt, so he has to go and kill 30 people to do that. So you see this man. You see him take powers and talents which God has given to him and abuse them. He abuses them. He could have done so much. A guerrilla fighter, a sort of John Bunyan figure, a, a kind of six million dollar, six million talent man. Uh, and yet, look how he abuses it. His strength was such a great gift, and he could have accomplished so much, but he loses his power by giving way to this misuse of it. And then there comes the next episode. He's kind of something of a practical joker. Uh, he abused the talents by going into the city of Gaza, where the Philistines are. And again, he goes into a harlot. He has a weakness uh, for sexual abuse, uh, for abusing the sexual gifts that God has made for a great gift, but he is not disciplined, and uh, he is passionate, and as a result of it, he goes into a harlot there, and while he's in her house uh, in Gaza, the people in the city decide that uh, when the first light of day comes, that they'll kill him. He wakes up at midnight and goes out and takes the big, huge gates of the city, and pulls them out of their sockets in the ground and takes them up on top of a hill and puts them up there like a big practical joker and makes fun of the people. He demonstrates great strength, but he doesn't use it uh, in the right way. There's so much power there that he could have used for God, but which he abuses and does not use in the right way. The strength and the courage which should have been there uh, and used in a right way, he doesn't use in the right way. He wants to do everything. You notice what a loner he is, we're pointed out. Uh, first, he, he fails to, to use the powers that God give him in a right way. And secondly, he tries to do everything by himself. He will not listen to his parents, and he will not listen to anyone else. And that always gets you in trouble. We need one another. 
That's why we need the fellowship of the church. We as elders in this congregation have a responsibility for little Catherine and little Jimmy who came this morning and for Skipper and for Letta. They are a part of the body of Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus and we need one another. My favorite example of a true church is like mountain climbers all roped together, climbing up a mountain. If one slips, we don't cut the rope and let him fall. We try to pull him back and to help him. When one person dies, we should rush to try to be helpful and encouraging to people. When people are seeking a job, when people are lonely, when they're sick, when they're troubled, we ought to have them prayed for. You know, this is why cults... Uh, uh, one of the things I had to do this week was to preview a film, a documentary on the Jonestown Massacre. And it was a horrible thing. I didn't want to even see the film. In fact, the thing that came on TV, I didn't see. I turned it off. I didn't want that junk in my mind before I went to sleep. And, uh, but this thing I had to, to, to go through, and it was done from a Christian perspective by a, a distinguished uh, seminary professor who showed why these cults exist. And one of the reasons they exist is this second reason here that Samson fails. He tries to do things by himself. And there are people who can't do things by themselves, so they seek the fellowship of people who will accept them. And practically all of those people at Jonestown were people who wanted very much to be accepted into some group, to be loved and accepted. And they found it there. And of course, their evil, uh, demoniac leader abused the power which he had and led them in his insanity to the horrors that took place. Well, we need one another in the Christian church and we need to show each other love. We need to be friendlier in our church here. I'm glad we have greeters at the door. We often don't know who visitors are, but we need to be uh, friendlier with one another and more loving and more supporting of one another because uh, we have a responsibility in Christ. I have to go quickly. He failed because he could not control his life. He couldn't control his sexual urge. He couldn't control his anger. He was a show-off. And he couldn't control his anger. And that got him into a lot of trouble. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control. We don't think nearly enough about self-control. I remember doing a panel once with a distinguished psychiatrist in which we talked about suicide on television. And he said that many people committed suicide because of pent-up hostility. They were angry at someone and they wanted to get back at them or they were angry at themselves and so they took that hostility out on themselves. And so this led to a discussion, how shall we deal with anger? It can be like a volcano, like St. Helens, uh, that makes a tight crust and then explodes and blows off the top and destroys everything for miles and miles around and does more than a billion dollars worth of damage because of that pent-up wrath that's there. Or we can learn to uh, put our rage under control uh, we can learn to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit, directed by Scripture, disciplined by Scripture, guided by Scripture. Samson's life was not under control. 
I was watching television the night that uh, Woody Hayes jumped off the bench and ran onto the football field and punched a, an opposing player with his fist and then beat back his own players who were trying to get him away from the field. And then he wouldn't even apologize for what he had done. What a terrible thing for a tremendously gifted and talented, brilliant football man to destroy so much in a moment of rage. We tend to write off anger as an acceptable sin. The elder brother's anger, when his younger brother came home, he would not go in. He made everyone else in the house miserable. But this is not the Christian way. And this is one of Samson's failings. He does not control his life. And then he compromised his convictions. He compromised his convictions. His third escapade with a woman led him to Delilah. He knew that he was a Nazarite dedicated from his birth to God. And his enemies, if they did not know wherein his great strength lay, they knew wherein his great weakness lay. And his weakness was women. And so they sent Delilah to him. And they gave her money. And she unscrupulously, caring only for money, entices him and brings him into her probably plying him some with wine, getting him to go to sleep on her lap, stroking him. The appealing to his ego, his enormous muscles, his great fame, his great proudness, his great power. And then she asks him about his strength. You know how he lies three times. And finally... He tells her the secret of his Nazaritic vow, the holiest thing in his life. And yet he doesn't hold on to it like Esau. He is willing to sell his birthright for a mess of pottage or for an erotic moment with an attractive woman. And so he does. And she calls for someone to come and to shave his head. And when he wakes up, one of the most pathetic things that you ever read in Scripture is that when he awakened from being on her knees, she made him to sleep upon her knees and she called for a man and caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head and she began to afflict him and his strength went from him. And she said, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself. And he knew not that the Lord was departed from him. This has happened again and again and again and again and again. He knew not that the Lord had departed from him. Spiritual things had become dull and boring. Prayer meant nothing. The hymns meant nothing. Dedication to Jesus, to honor, to purity means nothing to a man.
but he'll go through the motions and fake it. Nobody else will really know. But he's already caved in inside. And so I have to close. He comes out thinking that he has the strength, but he has it no more. He has it no more. And they gouge out his eyes and they put him like some beast of burden to walk round and round, grinding and grinding. I think many thoughts must have gone through his mind of what he might have been if he had only lived up to what God wanted him to do. And those days were days of prayer. God took away his eyes of sight that his soul might see. We should not use our eyes to lust after other people. Jesus warns about that. But we should use our eyes for the glory of God, not for this world. Lust. And in his blindness, there comes back to him a faith which his times of prosperity had allowed to go away. And then he, on that day when they celebrate their big victory, and they have all the lords and the ladies that are there to come to their big feast and to make sport with him. And you know the story. How Samson tells the boy who leads him after they had watched him perform his tricks of proudness and strength to lead him to the pillars. And the boy, thinking that he probably just wants to rest, leads him to the pillars on which, which hold up the roof of that building on which 3,000 of their generals, the Lord's going to get some mileage out of this because the Philistines are going to lose all their leadership in one big swoop of Presbyterian sovereignty. And, <laughs> and he puts one arm around one pillar and one arm around the other pillar. And then he bows his neck and bows the enormous muscles of his back and prays just one more time, Lord. Just one more time. And he pulls. And then the great crash comes and the dust goes up and the destruction has come there. Now he can be compared to our Lord Jesus Christ. Angels announce their birth. The parents both knew and were to dedicate their child to the Lord. Both were to be deliverers. Both died in the purpose of God. And both even died praying, but how different were their prayers. God, remember thee, me that I may be avenged upon the Philistines. For my eyes, said Samson. And Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Samson abused the gifts God gave him. Jesus never did. Jesus wouldn't even use his powers to turn stones into bread when he was hungry. Samson tried to do it all by himself. But Jesus was willing to trust people like you and me to carry on the work of the gospel and to show his love and mercy to others. Samson was the kind of person who couldn't control himself. Jesus was a perfect example of self-control. See him before Herod, never answer him a word. See him before Pilate, when Pilate is intimidated and awed in the presence of Jesus. Samson compromised his distinctiveness. Jesus never gave in to the pressure that the world tried to squeeze him into its mold. 
Samson took spiritual things lightly. Jesus took them very seriously. And he followed his father's will all the way to the cross and he gave his life for you and me. That's why we can say, hallelujah, what a savior. Dr. Dale Day was wonderful to say in his lesson on leadership. Don't be a victim of wasted and abused gifts. Don't be a victim of self-sufficiency and arrogancy and think that you don't need other people to help you. Don't be a victim of uncontrolled self-indulgence, the me generation, the narcissistic culture. Don't be a victim of compromise. I've always tried to encourage our young people here, develop the doctrine of holy stubbornness. You can say to someone else who offers you a drink, no thank you. I can be very happy without it. Don't be a victim of taking spiritual things lightly. This is not play. Church is not. We're out there mixing it with the world day by day. And what the world wants more than anything else in the world is just to see some Christian that they really believe, believes in God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength and loves Jesus enough to take him seriously and to live for him. Let us pray. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that thou wilt add thy blessings to us so that we shall understand our spiritual heritage and that in our reading of the Bible we may mark and inwardly digest the lessons which we need to learn. And having received the light, give us the grace by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in the light, loving one another, serving thee better. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with us all, both now and forevermore.